0: This week and next week, we'll be considering uh, first the last prayers of our Lord while here on earth, and then the resurrection, respectively. Next week being uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, the day that we remember uh, Christ rising from the dead. Today's sermon is titled "The Last Prayers of the Son of God." This title is not quite accurate. It should be noted that our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, has not ceased praying. Uh, as He sits in heaven. On the contrary, the Scriptures clearly proclaim in Hebrews 7 that Jesus continually makes intercession for us. In verses 20-25 through 25 of Hebrews 7 we read, "...and inasmuch as he has not, uh, He was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but He with an oath by Him who said to Him, the Lord has sworn and I will not relent, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But He, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them." Jesus Christ is an eternal intercessor. And today we're going to look at uh, his last prayers here on earth before he came, went to the, ascended to the right hand of the Father to become that eternal intercessor. Jesus continues forever and is unchangeable in his priesthood. He is always living to make that intercession for us, for those God has chosen for salvation. And just as the Father will not relent in his oath in appointing Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus will not relent in making intercession for us, his covenant people. However, it is our focus today to consider the final prayers of our Lord Jesus during his ministry here on earth, leading up to his, and including his crucifixion. These prayers are recorded for us in the hours just prior to and during our Lord's unjust execution. And these prayers reveal our Lord's passion. We call this the Passion Week. And I believe these prayers help us to understand His passion for the salvation of men. We often hear about this being the Passion Week. Some of you may have asked the question, why, what, why use that terminology? And it is my hope today to give us a clearer understanding as to what His passion was during this week. The passion of our Lord had not changed from the beginning of His earthly ministry. Yea, not even from the foundations of the, the earth, as I spoke last week about long suffering. It's before the foundations of the earth that Jesus' passion for the salvation of men was wrought. Our salvation was solidified in God's decree there, and Jesus embraced His part in bringing that to fruition before the foundations of the earth. But today I wanted to, to consider these three prayers that we've just read from uh, uh, Luke's Gospel and some of the corresponding texts from the other Gospels. And so each prayer becomes a point in today's sermon. The first, Jesus' unrelenting pursuit of the will of His Father, both in prayer and in action. Secondly, Jesus' compassion for individuals who are lost and dying in the midst of His passion, and then Jesus' atoning sacrifice, both body and soul, in His final prayer on the cross. So let's begin with His unrelenting pursuit of the will of the Father. We begin here in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has gone to a place, the Scriptures say, coming out, He went to the Mount of Olives as He was accustomed. This was a normal place for Him to go to pray. This wasn't an unusual place. Now, he didn't spend all of his earthly ministry in Jerusalem, so he, wasn't, he couldn't avail himself to the Mount of Olives on, at, at, at any point. But when he was in Jerusalem, apparently the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane was a place he was accustomed to go to pray. We see this in verses 39-41. through 41. He withdraws himself once he arrives at this place to pray, from his disciples, a stone's throw. Now, I don't know how far that is, but my guess is it's maybe as much as 20 or 30 yards. It depends how strong his arm was. After all, he is the Son of God. But he, 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 he absents himself from the disciples and goes to a place by himself to pray. He does this, I believe, because he wants to commune very closely with the Father. He wants to to use this opportunity to, to, to keep his attention on his Father. And yet, before he goes there, notice what he says to the disciples. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, Jesus has already predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And so he knows that the temptation of Satan is going to be upon the disciples. And he is commending them to pray as well. We will find out later that they fall asleep. In their prayers. Jesus doesn't fall asleep. His passion for what He's about to do is overtaking Him. To the point that He cries out, Father, if it's Your will, take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And then in verse 43, God the Father sends an angel to strengthen him. We don't know which angel this is, but my guess is it's one of the archangels. It may be Gabriel. One of the archangels is likely in his presence here to strengthen him. To what end? To what end does the Son of the living God need to be strengthened? Well, I think it's apparent that he's facing death which he knows not of. He's going to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, He's going to, to pass through things that are unknown to Him. Unknown to Him. And as a man, He wonders, do I have the strength to do this? Do I have the ability to continue on? And God in His grace and in His mercies sends an angel to strengthen our Lord in this, in this time of agony, in this time of uncertainty. Uncertainty. Verse 44, "...and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground." His prayer wasn't just simply, Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. His prayers continue, but that is the essence of the prayers that he is praying before the Father. That's what's recorded for us in Scripture the Scriptures, the the Synoptic Gospels, well, all four Gospels, give us a summary of the life of Christ, of the, 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 the essence of the importance of His work on earth and His work to bring salvation. That particular sentence, Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. This is the essence of what Jesus has come to do, to lay down His life, for you and for me. Jesus wants to do the will of the Father. But in His humanity, He understands His weaknesses. And He's agonizing over that weakness. The Bible says he is, that He was tempted just as we are tempted. At this point, Jesus is being tempted not to walk down that path. The path that's already been decreed by the Father. To die on the cross that a substitutionary atonement might be made for men, for you and for me. And Jesus is telling His disciples, pray that you won't be tempted. Here I believe Jesus is praying that same prayer. Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. Strengthen me to go through this, this work. Let me do the will of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteousness, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John chapter 6, verse 39, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And how will he do that unless he is strengthened in the hour of his need, the hour of his temptation, to walk through this crucible? The crucible of death. The agony, the the great drops of blood that are spoken of here, we have the phrase, like great drops of blood, and there is debate whether blood was actually mingled with His sweat. But His sweat... Think about where sweat came from, the first reference of sweat in the Scriptures. It's at the fall, isn't it? Isn't, Isn't Adam said in the curse that by the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth the fruit of the earth. Well, by the sweat of the brow of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, salvation would be had. God, Christ's agony and His punishment would bring about a renewal of what was lost in the garden. And it's interesting that God the Son is in a garden seeking the face of God the Father to do His will. In Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, we read this, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is a description of Christ in His final hours before His crucifixion. He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. Here Jesus is doing that. And yet, in just a few hours, the Father would forsake His Son as He died to redeem us from sin. Brethren, this brings us to the second prayer that we find in the next chapter, Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with Him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Not only was Jesus uh, steadfast in His pursuit of doing the will of the Father, He was steadfast in pursuit of showing grace and mercy to we who are sinners. While in the midst of doing the will of the Father on the cross, Jesus pleads for forgiveness for His Roman executioners. His prayer, I believe, was heard and answered by His heavenly Father. I believe it was in at least the case of one of His uh, executioners. John records in chapter 15 verses 38-39 through while Jesus hung on the cross. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Here a Roman centurion, having seen the execution of of an innocent man, and when Jesus cries out on behalf of his executioners that God would forgive them, one of his executioners actually recognizes that this was the Son of the living God. I have put to death the Son of the living God. How would you live with yourself after doing that? How would you live with yourself? The only way you could is if you believed that He would die for your sins and raise you because of His resurrection on the day of judgment. That's the only way you could live with yourself. Judas went out and hung himself. He couldn't live with it because he didn't have faith to believe. But I believe this centurion we will likely meet in heaven one day. The steadfastness of Jesus to bring salvation to men was clearly evidence on the very cross he died on. His prayer to his heavenly father seeking forgiveness for his executioner shows that he understood the need for his death and the efficacy that it would provide in saving the souls of men. He was set... To do the will of the Father, and he knew that if he had completed that work, that there would be salvation for men, even the men who raised their hand to take his life. And so this brings us to the last of our Lord's prayer to the Father, where we find it in Luke chapter 23 verses 40 through 44 through 46. Here again the word of God. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, here's the prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now I started in verse 44 briefly Time doesn't permit me to explain the differences between our timekeeping and that of the first century A.D. The sixth hour to the ninth hour, referenced in Luke 23, 44, for us corresponds with noon to 3 p.m. Noon to 3 p.m., the sixth hour to the ninth hour in the text. Now, again, time doesn't permit me to explain the differences. Suffice it to say, though, I think it's important that the, the reference here is that during the, the, the brightest part of the day, when the sun would be shining, Jesus Christ dies in darkness. He dies in darkness. Wasn't that what He had said to, the, to those who had arrested Him? You've waited until darkness to do your, your evil deed. And so it was in keeping with that statement that the next morning or the next day at the noon hour when He would die, that darkness would be cast over the earth as well. It was a dark time. Jesus had become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He says, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And what's not readily apparent to us, although you may have a reference in your Bible to this, if you have a reference Bible, What's not readily apparent to us is that Jesus is quoting from David's Psalm 31, verse 5. That verse reads this way, "...into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth." That whole psalm is about God being a fortress, a redeemer, one who protects, and yet Jesus is dying at that very hour saying, "...into your hand I commit my spirit." Think about this, brethren. The final words of our Lord Jesus before his death is Scripture itself. Those were his final words. And he's committing his soul into the hands of the Father. Is there importance to that? Is there significance? Absolutely. In Isaiah chapter 53, and we read this portion last week when I spoke about the long suffering of our Lord. Verses 10-11, through we read these words. Hear the words about soul, His soul in this prophecy. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief. We've already seen that in our passages. The The next sentence. When you make His soul an offering for sin. When you make His soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Brethren, Jesus died not only for the redemption of your bodies, but for the preservation of your souls. And it took his soul to do that. He had to offer up his body and soul as a sacrifice for us, according to Isaiah. When you make his soul an offering for sin. His soul an offering for sin. When the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 these words, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He wasn't talking just about His physical body. He's talking about His soul as well. All of Christ had to be offered for our redemption. Otherwise, our souls would not be redeemed with our bodies. Paul is referring both to body and soul. Matthew Henry comments on this passage with this observance. I thought this was very salient. He was himself both the priest and the sacrifice. Speaking of Jesus. He was himself both the priest and the sacrifice. Our souls were forfeited, and he must go to redeem the forfeiture. Our souls were forfeited in sin, and he had to go to redeem the forfeiture. What was forfeited? Our souls. The price must be paid into the hands of God. The party offended the hands of God, he being the party offended by sin, to him he had undertaken to make full satisfaction, Jesus did. Now by these words, he offered up the sacrifice, did as it were, lay his hand upon the head of it and surrendered it. I deposit it. I pay it down into thy hands, Father. Accept my life and soul instead of the lives and souls Of the sinners I die for. Jesus paid both with body and soul that your lives might be redeemed. Body and soul. The ransom has been paid in full. A body and a soul had to be offered up as a sacrifice to the Father to redeem bodies and souls. Jesus, the great High Priest and Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was offered up to the Father, body and soul, as our Redeemer. Thus, the passion of Jesus began with a kiss from the traitor Judas, continued through an unjust trial and crucifixion, but was only completed when Christ's soul was commended to the Father as the final sacrificial requirement to save our wretched souls. Our Lord's example to be, a, to be faithful to the absolute very end is our lesson for today. To those who already put their trust in Jesus as their Savior, He has redeemed us to the uttermost, both body and soul. And we have the sure hope of the resurrection when the body and soul are reunited, that they will be reunited for eternity. We shall live together in Him for eternity. If there are those here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, neither your body nor your soul will see redemption from sin until you cast both body and soul on the One who has paid the ransom for you. And His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible plainly states, If if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is good news, brethren. For you and for me, for those who have trusted, and for those who will yet trust. But I call those who do not trust, put your trust in Christ, and He will lift you up. Let us pray together.